Hi, I'm Kevin Steinberg, and you're listening to Frankly Kev. This is the Everyday Hero series, where I talk to people who have faced one or more of life's many challenges. We talk about what happened, how they got through it, and what they did to survive and maybe even thrive. On today's episode, The Storm Inside, my guest shares about her inspiring and awesome adventure from when she was a young woman in her 20s who pushed herself out of her comfort zone and agreed to join a sailing expedition from Spain to Thailand without any sailing experience whatsoever and where everything that could go wrong did and in terrifying fashion. Within three months, she bravely faced a health crisis, serious mechanical failures, the threat of pirates, insect swarms, and a Category 5 cyclone. This adventure at sea turned into a journey of the soul, as she was forced not only to deal with the elements and other incidents beyond her control, but face the deeply buried trauma of sexual assault and find the strength to break her silence to reclaim her power and her voice. This interview is based on her recently released memoir, I Want to Go Home, Reclaiming Power After Sexual Assault. The Storm Inside, Part 2. Please welcome my very special guest, Renee Marie Simpson. Renee, you are actually running from something that you didn't know how to deal with. Tell us about that, please. So pretty much I was raped a week before I went on my big trip overseas. You know, I was 21, so I'd been saving up for a good chunk of time after I'd finished school to have this amazing adventure. Building up my trust as a young adult in myself to leave the nest ultimately and put my backpack on and get out into the world. To have something like this happen. So I was raped at a party by my best friend's boyfriend. I realised the next day when I woke up, my pants were back to front. My jeans were back to front. You know, they're not just like an easy pair of pants to put on back to front. Passed out, asleep, unconscious, and this person helped himself to my body ultimately. And I remember being really puzzled about that and not feeling quite right. And so I went and spoke to my friends and said, hey, what happened last night? I couldn't remember. And they just laughed. They just, oh, you're crazy. And I thought, no, this isn't, I'm not crazy. How, do, how am I crazy waking up my pants back to front? Why is that my fault? And so I just couldn't understand what could have possibly happened. So I, I drove home and when I drove home, I started to hear this voice in my head, like I was remembering this voice in my head that was saying, it's okay, Renee, it's okay, Renee, it's just me. It's okay, Renee, it's just me. And then I realised whose voice that was and I knew it was this guy, Shane, my friend's boyfriend. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this has happened. As soon as I got home, the first thing I did is, you know, you're hungover, I feel like shit, is have a shower, you know. I didn't think about going straight to the hospital. I didn't want to talk about this yet. I didn't know what to do with this. I just crawled into bed. I, I checked. I also had my period, so I also checked where's my tampon, realised that, that hadn't come out. That was still inside me. And that took three days to come out. And I was too ashamed to go to the doctors to say, hey, can you help me get this thing out? So I just couldn't deal with it. So eventually I did go and see a friend because I thought I was going to go around and tell my friend what her boyfriend had done to me. She wasn't home. And I thought. So you, you did go try and con confront her and tell her. I, I, yeah, I wanted to tell her. I felt like that was the right thing. But see, why do I need to? Wouldn't you think like 
I'd want to confront him. Why did I feel there must have been some sort of guilt that I felt like I had done something wrong that I needed to go and tell her? This is what I mean. There's so many issues when it comes to reporting rape, you know, when we know the perpetrator, and more often than not, we do. And more often than not, they are a friend or a relative. So I went across the road to another girlfriend's house because I just couldn't hold this anymore. And I told her what had happened. And she totally understood because she said he is a creep to me I've been in situations where I felt like he's made me uncomfortable totally believed me thank goodness and then she said but I really think it's in your best interest if you just go overseas and just pretend this never happened he will ruin you him and his friends will ruin you and you know they'll destroy your reputation yeah I understand that I'm surprised that a woman would say that to another woman but I understand when you say you know, that when you do speak up, it the guy and his pals turn it around and, as you say, ruin your reputation and run you into the ground. That's right. Or, yeah, you get told you're a liar, all these sorts of things. So she was foreseeing that might be the case. So I, I believed her. I also agreed with her. You know, I could see them doing that. When you're young, your social group's your world. And it's not until you sort of step out of that and I guess maybe discover how big this big beautiful world is that you can sort of put your your little self into a grander perception to understand that you know those people at the time didn't really matter you know what I mean in a broader in a broader context and I could have totally reported that and like you didn't go to the hospital to a doctor to get physically checked up to confirm that this happened and you you didn't go to the police to file a uh, report and you didn't tell your parents is this because of the way society treats women and that they might blame you or just think you're lying or making it up does this play into it consciously or unconsciously if you go to a doctor and say i was raped you're always believed and what they do the rape kit for is to make to find evidence for forensics so they're they are searching for dna they're looking for hair they're looking for anything that could be used as evidence if you choose to follow the justice system. They can also check for STDs. They can do a pregnancy check. Absolutely, yeah. So I would say from my research, yeah, that's huge. It's huge around how society might judge them. Um, I was also talking to a good friend. She's Vietnamese and she says in the Asian culture, we are so afraid to talk about sexual abuse because of our husband's judgment. So if, if their husband doesn't want them talking about it, that's a big thing. And they're afraid of how their families will judge them as well as their cultural community. But I also think this is relevant in all, for all of us because we're all afraid of judgment, right? We're all afraid of looking less than. And I know when we talked about this last time, we know that if you're a prostitute, drug addict, alcoholic, any sort of substance abuse, you were considered less than human and uh, less believable in a court of law. And then we see this play out with privilege. On the other, the other side is the people that are more privileged. We're looking at white, male, wealthy, you know, come from more of a higher section, socioeconomic background um, and educated. So if you come from that world or have that background, then you're more, you're more than human, right? 
and this is where this is where it's really not fair and then like the discrimination happens and you know and then if you come from minority as well a minority background they have they have more like complex barriers to overcome to access support you had also mentioned something that i didn't realize how uh, throughout history when uh, nations are are at war and feuding there are some that will go and rape the women they'll use rape as a as a weapon because then the women are soiled thrown out of the community or shunned how fucked up is that that we blame it on the woman and we don't hang the guy it's just very backwards absolutely and you know what is really disgusting about that is it's often so where I learned about that I watched this amazing documentary I can't remember what it's called now I'll have to find out and I'll get back to you but it's something I learned after this trip too about how rape can be used as this weapon of destruction and how that how in that documentary how it was used was a western mining company employed the local militia and said to the local militia go and rape the women because what happens is it breaks down the whole family system because the women, yes, you're right, are shunned from their community. So you need to leave now. And imagine these, this poor, this culture, this, these poor families, these, these people that are like, this is the only way we know how to deal with shame in our culture is to, well, you, you're dirty, you're soiled, like you said, um, you need to leave. And so what happens then to the family system is that, Dad can't take care of the kids. Who's there to, like, feed them and take care of them while he works in the farm? So what happens then is they can't manage their farms, they can't manage their crops. And so the whole complete family system, culture breaks down. And what was happening, this was in Central Africa where this was happening, is then the whole families are being removed from their land through this. So then the whole family is moving to the city because they, they can't survive. So what happens then is the mining company wins because that whole village now has moved. Isn't that disgusting? It's disgusting. It's aggravating. It's sickening. It's shocking. It's that that this is a part of humanity. It's not certainly not humane, but this is how people think and operate. Like it's just fucked up. I don't have any other word, but it's so it's so wrong. Oh. And just even in this documentary, just how brutal they are with these women too. Like these women, there's this amazing doctor. I think, where is he? I'm going to have to get back to you on where, this, where, where they're at, the Congo or something. But I know that this beautiful doctor, he's a local man. He's the only person that could perform this reconstructive surgery on the women's bodies, their vaginas, whole reconstruction because some of them. They were cutting off their clitoris is this what you're no well that's a whole other conversation <laughs> that's a whole other conversation female genital yeah female genital mutilation oh yes sorry i thought that's where you were going no well those sorts of things i'm sure would be happening too but no this is about the the complete destruction of a woman's womb her bodily organs like this is how much damage that they would do to these women like that they have to go and have, if they lived through it, you know, they'd have to, you know, they'll, they'll be getting a helicopter to fly in and perform this like this emergency uh, reconstructive surgery just to help the woman live 
you know, to be able to have, a, have her bodily functions. She'd probably never be able to have a baby again. It's just horrendous. I just can't believe how women are treated in the in this world. Mm, mm. You know, and this is the, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're, we're seeing how women are treated in this world that are from, you know, the poorest countries. Like, look at India. Oh, they have a huge problem with rape. They're doing a lot around this, a lot of work around this. The I was going looking at the news and one of the lead stories was all these men that they're looking after somewhere in India who took part in raping this 15-year-old girl. And I have to then go to another website. And it's so it is hard to look at. It's hard to listen to these stories. But I think we need to have the courage to listen um, because that's the only way that we're going to feel motivated to do something about it. You're right. You're completely right. What would you do different today if what happened to you have happened now? And what would you tell other women that this has happened to? What would your advice be if they came to you? Um, I can't say looking back would I do anything different because I can't do that. I think what I can say, yeah, like you said, what advice do I have for other women that might experience this now, knowing what I know now, it would be that, so first of all, you matter. What happened to you is important. It is a crime. It's not okay. I don't care who it is. You do not need to suffer in silence. I think that is the most painful thing we can we do to ourselves is just suffer in that silence. There are so many gentle ways we can approach this now and this is why I'm so passionate about spreading this awareness is I wish I had have known that there were support lines that I could have called because I certainly wasn't ready to talk to anyone I didn't know how other people would deal with it I certainly didn't feel like anyone else could hold space for me to talk about what had happened either and it's really scary too because you think a lot of people would just pressure you to report so go to the police you know and I'm very scared of the police if you haven't had positive experiences with the police, that might be the last place you want to go. So I, that certainly wasn't, I wasn't interested in that. And so I think a support line is such a gentle place to start. So it's confidential. A lot of, a lot of places now you can, you can SMS or you can just write online um, or you can call them up. It's usually, it would be a trauma therapist or someone who is a counsellor that specialises in sexual assault. In Australia, we have 1-800-RESPECT line. They will give you options. They will give you information that you can make informed choices on how you wish to move forward. So it might just start with counselling. It might just look like, you know, you might want to call up once a week and just talk to someone in this space or they might refer you on to someone who can offer you free counseling lots of free counseling out there it's about money lots of free counseling and I think it's a really nice gentle place to start with someone who doesn't know you so I would say that's really important but I think for us to even get to that part we need to realize that we are worthy you know um, that what happened to us was not okay and I think my advice then would be when you feel ready to actually talk to your family or your friends or whoever you choose to let in, that you choose someone that can hold space for you. So have a really good think about who that's going to be because I know it can be re-traumatising to talk to someone who doesn't believe you, first of all. Secondly, um, 
to have someone who makes it all about them, you know, their emotions take over, you know, they're losing control, they want to take over the situation and tell you what to do and or are they going to be someone that's going to judge you and you're going to get blamed. Those things can be really traumatising to have those sorts of questions. So I would say, yeah, pick someone that you can trust, uh, that, that you think can hold space for you. And, and uh, you know, and even calling those support lines, you can talk through that with those counsellors, like who might be the best person for you to talk to as your support person. Um, but I know it is important to have a support person. I probably didn't, if I'm honest, you know, during my time, my experiences. If you read my book, you'll understand um, what those experiences were like initially for me. So I learned not to trust family or I learned not to trust people. And now... Um... There's a, I have a whole bunch of questions. Now, am I, can I bring up now, this wasn't the first time that this happened to you and maybe what happened earlier, this response played into how you reacted later. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. So um, when I was six years old, I was sexually abused by a neighbor. I didn't talk about that until two years later. I remember when you're six, you don't have the language to talk about right or wrong. You don't you don't really have like these these moral lessons as such, and you don't know if people if your parents haven't talked to you about sexual assault. I think um, by this point and had conversations around who can and can't touch you and um, consent and all those sorts of things. Um, I think we don't have the language to say what happened to me was wrong or you didn't have the language at the time to even say, no, you're not allowed to touch me there. I'm not okay with that. But also what we do know about pedophiles is they're very good at grooming and making you feel like it's okay. We're just playing a game, you know, don't tell anyone, but it's just our special game and you're my special friend and these sorts of things. So I think it can be really easy for, for poor for kids, get to, for kids to get lost in what's okay and what's not okay, you know, and a person who is an adult is aware of that and they have the power in that relationship because kids are taught do as you're told. If an adult tells you to do something, you have to do as you're told. Be a good girl, right? I have a daughter now and I won't be teaching her that she has to be a good girl for no one, for no one. If she feels uncomfortable, if someone says, can I touch you on your private parts, you don't have to be a good girl. You can run away and come and tell mummy, okay? You fight. Whatever you need to do, you know, you just get out of that situation, you know, however you need to do it safely. What happened in my situation is, yeah, I didn't have the language. I don't remember ever anyone talking to me about this prior. So then when, and this man had animals, right? That was his, his way in with me. So he had these animals in his backyard, these farm animals. So I would go over and play with the animals, and then he would take me into his shed and get me to do things to him, okay? Two years later, my mum and I were watching a movie and something must have came up around sexual assault with this little girl and I said to my mum, oh, my God, that happened to me. And that's when I first realised what had happened, okay? And then I remember them doing some sort of like, you know, stranger danger, but like I've mentioned before, it's usually someone you know. But I remember being at school and sitting through these like, you know, this uh, scenarios where they said to us, you know, oh, if you stay at a friend's house and, you know, the father, you know, of your friend says, let's play this game or let's do this or whatever, what would you do? A, B, C. 
And it was hugely triggering for me. I'm thinking, you're a little bit fucking late. You're a little bit late. You know, this has already happened to me. You know, this conversation should have been, as you know, as soon as you can have these conversations. I'm, I'm having them with my daughter as soon as I can around consent, around, you know, um, what does that look like when you've got a little one? It can be around teaching your young person to say, yes, I'm okay with you playing with my toy right now. Oh, I don't like the way you play with my toy. I want it back. You know, that she's able to have those conversations and change her mind at any time. And, you know, when she's not feeling good, she can express that or, you know. But once again, it's not, this is what makes me angry is that we're putting all this responsibility onto young women all the time to keep themselves safe and not putting the onus on men to not rape, to respect them, to respect when someone says no, to respect when someone changes their mind, to respect when someone's passed out. (laughs) How hard is that one? Right. Um, and so where did you where did you ever learn that that's okay uh, and that's consent like exactly what? this power and control this need for power and control so so my experience was when I told my mother yes I was believed thank goodness and I'm grateful but my mother had her own experience of sexual abuse and that's not my story to tell but because of her experience. Um, it really blocked her being able to support me. So I said, I want to go to the police. I wanted justice. I wanted to go through the court system. I wanted to put this man away. I didn't want other little girls to go through what I'd gone through. Sort of, it was a bit like nothing happened with my mum, if I'm honest. And so she just sort of listened. And then I ended up talking to a school counsellor about it. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to get in trouble for my mom, you know, like she's not going to like this. And then um, it was the counsellor that sort of supported me with my mom and, and said, you know, this is really important to Renee that she reports. It's really important to Renee that she wants justice. And she was able to be this advocate for me with my mom. So eventually my mom did take me to report with the police and a very horrible, you know, experience because they asked you, what did his penis look like? Was he circumcised? Was he not? And imagine being like an eight-year-old. This is really re-traumatizing. Gave them all the details that they needed. So they went and knocked on his door pretty much with this information, said, you know, did you or did you not do this? There have been these allegations made. And he pretty much said no. So then the police came back to me and said, if you pursue this, it'll be your word against his. Um, we'd advise you that it's probably not worth pursuing because the justice system is horrendous to victims and this could be really damaging for a little girl again that's just like on on the wrong side like look who's going getting vilified and where does a little eight-year-old girl know these things to make these things up like you're not you haven't even hit puberty you didn't have the internet at that time and have all this porn and you have you know, an, ima- an imagination. Like, I don't, like, like, what is a little girl making this up for? That's exactly what I said. You know what? Even at eight, I had that wisdom. And I said, there is no, you know, there is no way I could make this up. What do I get out of it? What do I get out of it? Honestly, you know, who is this man? Why would I want to damage him? Like, <laughs> what, what do I have to gain? Right, right. I don't, I don't know. One day he didn't give me milk and cookies or pet his animals. So I, I'm I'm going to fuck exactly. him up. And that's what I said. That's exactly what I said. And so I wasn't afraid. Kev, I wasn't afraid. I was ready to do the justice thing. 
Renee, that's awesome. That's so twisted. And my mom said no, because it hurt her too much. You know, it was bringing up a lot of stuff for her and her memories and her trauma. And she said, I just can't go through this, Renee. I can't go through this. And so for my mom, you know, I said, okay, I'll leave it. I'll leave it. When you were older and it happened again and you ran from it, clamped up because that's what you were kind of told to do and you didn't run right to your parents or call home and let them know right away because given the message, they don't want to deal with this. It's not okay to talk about it. Yeah, we can't deal with this. Exactly. So that's exactly how I, how, how I felt. And I thought, okay, well, I've, I've told my mum before when something like this has happened and that didn't go so well. So, um, and I also know what the justice system was like and so I might just leave this. What's the point? So how long from the time you got off the boat, say from sailing, to either front your friend or her boyfriend or tell your family, how long did that take and what, did, what happened? What did that look like? I know I was away overseas for a good year and a half before I came home. So obviously I was sitting with all of this for a good year and a half. And I know I was having nightmares and I know I, I even wrote a letter to my friend that I sat with. I kept it the whole time I was traveling, just hoping maybe one day I'd have the courage to post it. And that was sort of therapeutic for me just to know I had the power to to do that at some point. You know, I think I probably had a lot to drink before I told my parents, you know, because I felt like I needed that courage to go, hey, this happened to me. Um, that's like, the you know, I don't think that's not my message to um, to the audience to do that. But I think, you know, you've got to find a way to tell your story one way or another in a way that feels safe for you. Um, but I know my parents held me in a completely different space, you know, the second time when I told them about it. And they did say to me, what do you want to do about this? Of course, my dad was like, I'm going to kill him. Um, I know where he lives. It's a good dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I said, that's going to make things worse. Please don't do that. Where I felt like I was with it um, was a lot better. I just needed to tell people that I loved and cared about to say, hey, this happened to me and, you know, if you see these different signs of PTSD pretty much, it's probably um, a combination of the sailing trip and my sexual assault. So just so they had that awareness and, you know, and I, I could access support when I was ready. For me, my healing came in um, making my life about service and supporting other young people. Uh, so I went into school counselling and youth work and that's really where I wanted because what I learned is I wanted I didn't want other young people to suffer in silence like I had. I wanted them to have a safe person they could talk to who was like a big sister that they could come and knock on my door at school and say, hey, you know, got some stuff going on. Will you be there for me? Yes, of course. I'll walk with you. Listen, believe me, you know. Be that conduit too with their parents if they needed it. So th this has all shaped you as an adult and the career that you've chosen. Huge. It's, it's really, it's my core values are centered around these experiences. Now, did you ever end up going to the police? Was there a statute of limitations? Did you confront this, the, the, the guy? I didn't go to the police because I had, I felt like I had my closure uh, a few years later. So I would have been about 24 and I went to a festival. And like I was saying, I do believe in, uh, the divine universe and divine timing and things just sometimes play out how they should. So uh, for me, I went to this festival and I ran into my friend and she says, oh, my goodness, 
so good to see you shane will love to see you and i couldn't believe just the way they were just like and by the way these people did not contact me check in with me these are supposed to be my friends from school they didn't as soon as i left and went on my trip overseas it was like i didn't exist this already told me the quality of those friendships and i felt like i mustn't have meant that much to them because you clearly don't care so when i ran into her and she was sort of acting like oh we've missed you so much it was bizarre didn't make sense to me at all because obviously her actions had proven otherwise but i thought to myself this is the moment this is the moment i'm going to confront this guy i'm going to i'm going to just i'm doing it now his arms were wide open. Oh, my goodness, Renee, it's so good to see you. Actually, it was Nene. He used to call me Nene. Nene! And I went, don't fucking touch me. You raped me. All our, these old friends were just, you know, around, and they were just like, you know, I remember them sort of like moving forward, like what the hell's going on? And I said, you raped me. And he turned around and said, you're going to do this right now. And I said, absolutely. You know, I think my words were absolutely. And... He said, yes, I did. And I couldn't believe it. This this admission. Yes, I did. And I'm sorry. He didn't deny it. And then he went on to say, like, I was doing, he was doing a lot of drugs back then. And, and I said, you know, and I remember just looking at him and then just saying, I will forgive you, but I'll never forget and we'll never be friends. This isn't a private setting. This is in public and everyone is a witness to him, him saying, yeah, I did. I was was high. Guess what? I've done a lot of drugs and I've been high and I've never done that. <laughs> yeah, because you, you know. You know right from wrong still. You know. Being an addict is, you know, that's about like a lot of self-harm. It's about being in pain. It's about escaping. It doesn't, it's not about like raping. It's not about that. No, no. So it's not about power and control. That is something completely different. It's not the drugs or the alcohol that made you do it. That is something else. So did you feel at this, after this moment, like a big weight had been lifted off and that you had the closure and that you were able to to move forward? And Huge. It was huge. I did. It wasn't one of those moments where I wanted to just cry or, but I had this moment of just like, oh my goodness, that just happened. And yes, it was like this big, like, you know, these rocks, these boulders I've been carrying around with me just fell away. And I was like, wow, okay, wow, that just happened. And I remember just thinking, wow, that, you know, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened. And being, but also being very grateful, it probably sounds really weird, but grateful that I had that closure because there are so many victims out there that don't get that admission, that don't get a sorry, that don't get that was wrong of me. Um, or don't even get like, yes, I did that to you. You know, there's so many people out there that say, no, he denies it all and, you know, makes me out to be this and that, total denial. And so for that I am grateful in my experience. Never should have happened, but I, I was grateful to have that closure and I could let it go, you know. And so what happened to him, uh, I think it was about six years ago, is he died in a car accident. So I remember... Uh, my dad calling me and saying, I've heard that this guy died in a car accident. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, um, I'm going to have a couple of beers tonight. Um, some people might think, oh, you know, that's not fair, like death for rape. But if you know, like, how long-lasting the impacts of sexual assault and rape are, you would understand uh, just the gravity of the damage that it can do to a human being and their self-worth. You can see me, or the listeners can't, but when you told me he was 
hit by a car and died. And I thought to myself, karma's a bitch. Oh, well. Life has a funny way, isn't it? Yeah. So that was sort of, that was it for me. It was finished. But obviously the impacts are still there. I still struggle with trust. I still struggle, struggle with security. I still can't sleep over a friend's house. Like, you know, I can't sleep at a stranger's house or someone, you know, that's an acquaintance. I have to sleep in my own bed at my own house or if I'm at a friend's house, it has to just be us. If there's other people staying in that house that I don't know, it's not happening. You can't erase that. You can come to terms with it, but you can't erase anything that has happened to you. I mean, some people are, are able to black periods out or events out from their life somehow. Um, but, you know, and some things we just, we, we just forget. But usually the major incidents, we don't. We carry them with us. It's, it's, in, it's in our bones. It's in our muscle. It's, it's in our spirits. It shapes us. You can't get away from that. So did this event... How, how do I phrase this question? Because I'm just going to go a little backwards to your uh, sailing expedition, you know, which was one week after this happened. How were you able to trust getting on a boat with three men who were strangers and then having a romance on the high seas again? It was extremely difficult for me to trust initially, and but not in a sense that that it, that it kept me from living my best, funnest, adventurous life. And how I navigated that was by by really um, preparing. It was about preparation. It was about how can I do this as safely as I can? How can I protect myself as best I can without, you know, impeding on having a really great time, you know? And because I reckon there are so many people out there that fear would hold them back or that trust would hold them back. And, you, and I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people that go, I wish I had a push through that. I could have had, and I had this opportunity and I didn't do it. So I knew that that was under the surface. And for me, I needed reassurance from my dad. You know, I really needed to call my dad and was like, okay, I got off with this really great sailing trip. I really want to go, but I'm super, super afraid. What do you think? And he was like, go for it. I really needed that. And I rang um, this amazing guy that I was planning on, coming, um, you know, coming home for two in New Zealand. He was this huge, big adventure guy as well. And he said, you will not get a chance like this ever again. He goes, I'm so jealous. I wish I was like doing this. And so that made me feel really good. And then I ended up, um, I knew a couple of guys that owned a sailing school as well in Gibraltar. And so I asked them, um, you know, would you guys come out for dinner with us, meet this other skipper from Canada and this other guy from Canada, um, I already knew Brian. I already knew Nikki. So uh, I knew that Nikki was a novice like me and she was a friend. So I, that was fine. I trusted her. Um, Brian I knew was a qualified skipper. I trusted him. Um, and we had lots of friends in the marina that we knew mutually. So I felt check those boxes. There must have been some assurance too since you had your girlfriend with you. You weren't going to be the only woman on the boat. Huge. Well, that was a big thing, Kev. Like I said to her initially, if you're not coming, I'm not going. So I needed another girl on the boat for me to feel safe. Yes. Um, I really think that's important. Uh, we should always have a buddy when we go to parties and things like that too. We should always have someone that we're looking, looking out for us. So, yeah. So I pretty much said to these guys that own the sailing um, school, if you wouldn't let your daughter get on this boat, I'm not going to go. And so they 
met, we went out for dinner all together. They asked all the questions. You know, obviously I have no idea about sailing terminology or anything. It was literally like I was sitting there with a dad just, and they were just like asking questions and I'm like, can I go? <laughs> and, um, and then they came and checked the boat. I even said, can you come and check the boat too? And just like check out like safety and, you know, make sure it's got everything that you think that it needs to have and check that off too. Cause obviously I have no idea what I'm looking for. So they did that as well and obviously the boat still was falling apart but in terms of trust, I think I did everything I possibly could in my power to feel safe, to feel like I was in control. I'm going to ask you something and you can tell me if you don't want to bring it into this conversation or not because you had told me something about intuition or premonitions that you had had and I was just wondering if you ever had any feelings about what would happen during this uh, sailing trip, uh, you know, the, the cyclone and, and things like that. And if you ever had any feeling about this guy who assaulted you? Good question. I'm going to say no, I didn't. But I did have, I did go and see a psychic when I was 20. It must have been 20 because I know it was just after... Um, you know, I was a trip away with the girls and whatever. And I went and saw a psychic and the psychic said to me, you're going to go on a trip over water. It's going to be the most reckless thing you ever do, but it's going to be the mo- the most, one of the most important things you'll ever do in your life. And, yeah, and, and they said, and there's going to be a romance. And I never put it together until years later I found this tape, right, and I played it and sure as it says, you know, it talks about that. And then it says, um, and you're going to be, and your whole life is going to be about this humanitarian cause. And and I just sort of like kind of cried, kind of laughed and just sort of went, oh, my goodness, like totally. Like, but So I personally didn't have a premonition around the trip, but certainly um, this amazing man did. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't see it at the time. I couldn't see it. <laughs> I thought that trip over water was just like flying overseas, perhaps. In regard to the book, how did that come about? Uh, how long did that take? And was that another step in your healing? I've been working on the book for 10 years, all up, just sort of pick up the project and sort of rewrite things. But it's so funny because if you're working on something for 10 years, you know how much you change as a person. It's like if I'm picking this up every year, I've got a different lens on, you know, and a different perspective. And I, and I want to bring a different moral lesson to things. And so what I was finding, I was, I was getting really stuck with that. Like each time, I'm like, this is never going to be done. I'm always changing. Last year, I just decided I'm going to get really, really serious with this. We had just lost a baby at the time so I know I needed something to sort of hang on to and um, bury my head in at the time find a positive way to sort of like channel that energy you know obviously the me too movement really impacted me uh where I felt like oh now this it's becoming safer for us to tell our stories I, I also was really moved by the let us speak movement where here in Australia there were certain states that were threatening uh victims that when they had after they had gone through the justice system, they still um, were not allowed to tell their stories um, about what had happened to them or they would be fined $10,000. And I remember thinking, yeah, this is ridiculous. And New South Wales, where I live, 
this isn't this is it isn't the case. Like Nina Fennell is amazing, uh, and we have Grace Tame here, who is the face of that movement, and she was Australian of the Year, and they just did some really amazing work on overturning those wars. So now um, we are all free to tell our stories, as as we rightfully should be able to tell our stories. So. I felt really moved by that and I felt like now's the time I really want to tell this story. Uh, and I also decided to, to get this job done. I needed a book coach. So I met the amazing Danielle Anderson and she's from America too and she really helped. Um, she was more of a counsellor and a book coach because she I brought this story to her. She really believed in me as well. It was almost like this. You know, the whole experience that we go through with, you know, disclosing sexual assault, it's like I went through the same experience in, like, with her and the, the support I needed. So she believed my story was so much more than what I what I thought it, what I initially thought it could be. Um, she recognised the trauma in the story and said, you know, there is a bigger thing at play here. This is really important to you. It's coming through but you were skipping over it like it's nothing and, you know, um, we need to get to the heart of your story, which I really think is your healing um, after the sexual assault. And so she really helped. Well, as soon as she sort of like pointed that out to me, it was like this beacon and then I sort of went, oh, and then I just ran with it. I was like, you're absolutely right. And it's like she gave me permission and to just tell this story and, yeah, and as you've read, it did turn into this sort of really poetic, ex creative expression. Yeah, it's so beautifully written, and it's just the, the, the imagery, but also the emotion and the pacing and the laying out of events. It's just, it's expertly written. I was surprised that you told me that you hadn't taken any writing classes. This is from the heart and the soul. It's from the heart and from the soul. And, Kev, if I can say anything around that intuition, I was definitely connecting with some sort of creative higher power, I think, because I was getting ideas, you know, laying in bed, and I'd be like, oh, that's what I need to do. So um, when you read the book, you'll notice that I've structured the book in line with this beautiful folk story called The Lobus Story, and it's by Clarissa S.S. Pinkola. It's like my favourite. If you get a chance, have a look at Why Women Run With The Wolves. It's just amazing my favorite story in that book is the Loba's uh, the Loba story and it's about this old woman who lives in this cave and she comes out of a full moon and she collects these wolf bones and she uh, gathers them she assembles the skeleton she sings over the bones um, well she chooses a song she sings over the bones and eventually this wolf um, comes back into its into its true form and then runs off into the moonlight and then turns into this naked woman who's like you know free laughing she's um liberated and so for me i thought that really is what it's like healing after sexual assault and also to become a healer yourself so if you're in like the helping profession you know you can relate to being that the old woman in the cave and and helping people put their bones back together and singing over their bones and so who are you are you the old woman or are you are you being healed yourself you know are you putting your bones back together and that's so powerful and I love that and I'm glad you're talking about that because as I said to prepare again for this interview I started reading your book again and that story is near the beginning and I highlighted it right away and I was like I just love this passage 
And so that was something that came to me that I was laying in bed and I just thought, oh, and I knew that's how I needed to bring it in. I needed it to be in this book because I wanted it to not just be a story or a memoir. I wanted it to be this creative, beautiful expression of healing that it needs to be told in my way, you know. And even those quotes, you know, they were sort of things I was staying up till like 2 o'clock in the morning with my beautiful dog under the table and, you know, researching different quotes that really meant something to me that fit into the morals of the stories that I wanted to share. Is there anything else at all that I haven't asked, we haven't covered that you would like to talk about or, or, or mention? No, that was really good. They were really good questions. Thank you so much. And I get fired up. I know I get quite fired up with when um, I'm on and I feel really passionate and just that whole conversation around what's happening in other countries around the world. <laughs> I definitely felt that burning passion going through. Well, I still have you here. And uh, for everyone who's listening, it's Renee Marie Simpson. The book is I Want to Go Home. You look for it. It's on Amazon and you could probably just Google it and you can buy it online and you can buy it in bookstores. And it is Fucking fantastic. That's my recommendation. It's fucking fantastic. And it's honest and it's soulful and it, it's thrilling and it's meaningful. And you bet you better read it. Renee, thank you. I'm so glad we met. I'm so glad you agreed to do this again. We are going to keep, uh, keep in touch. I just think you're an amazing, amazing person. Thanks, Kev. So are you. Thank you so much. Those questions were just spot on. Awesome. You're so sweet. So we'll catch up with you later. You're not going to hang up, but you're, we'll catch up with you later, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that concludes part two of The Storm Inside. Thanks for listening to Frankly Kevin, spending some time with myself and my very special guest, Renee Marie Simpson. If you'd like to find out more about Renee and some of the topics we discussed, as well as purchase her book, you can find the links on this episode's page, The Storm Inside, right on the franklykev.com website. There's also a comment box there for you to fill in if you'd like to share your thoughts, write a review, or even ask a question. More episodes can be heard on the franklykev.com website, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Spotify, and various other listening platforms. You can also share individual episodes and subscribe to Frankly Kev right from my website as well as from all the other listening apps. And if you'd like to help independent artists like myself bring you the content you like to hear, then go to the donate page at franklykev.com. Every dollar counts and your donation is greatly appreciated. If you have an inspiring story you'd like to share and want to be a guest on the show, then just go to the contact page at franklykev.com and fill out the form. Or you can even email me directly at kev at franklykev.com. Thanks again for joining us, and remember, live simply, dream big, be kind, love hard, and laugh often. It may not be original, but it is true, and you take care. Until next time.
I have to say, even more so than than last time, which didn't get record recorded. Renee, you were like, you were so on fire. I was like, I was just watch. I was listening to you, but I was watching. I was like, you were so passionate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just. Uh,